Hello. Bonjour. Hello. Welcome to Fertility Insights, the Cooper Surgical Podcast. Welcome to Fertility Insights. This week, we are delighted to be joined by two of our colleagues and genetic counselors, Elizabeth Cameron and Dina Nussblatt. I'm Jenna Miller, your host for today and the current chair of ASRM's Genetic Counseling Professional Group. And uh, in relation to that, this document that we were discussing today was written by Elizabeth and Dina, along with other members of the Genetic Counseling Professional Group, um, Elizabeth and Dina and a a number of other uh, genetic counselors in our space, were involved in developing this new committee opinion uh, for ASRM. It's entitled Indications and Management for Preimplantation Genetic Testing for Monogenic Conditions. This opinion piece on the management of PGTM is it's really of increasing importance as we're seeing more patients having PGTM testing as part of their IVF cycle. And the document actually talks a little bit about why that is, both because of increased testing, increased understanding of various conditions. Um, there are a lot of reasons why we're seeing PGTM um, uptake increase in recent years. And it's also easily the most complicated of all of the different types of pre-implantation genetic testing, which is why a document like this is so important to um, kind of spell out for ART practitioners some of these nuances and and help us all better meet uh, patients' needs who are looking into this type of testing for their embryos. Elizabeth, uh, can you talk us through the suggested categorization of PGTM indications. Um, why was this sort of categorization necessary? And um, how do these things break down into, you know, what is acceptable, what's not acceptable, what's in between, et cetera? Yeah, I mean, I think that the goal here was really just to try and categorize the clinical indications for PGTM in order to highlight just one of the many areas of complexity that go into each of these individual assessments. Um, And perhaps to even try and help explain to our previous point why two clinicians and or even two labs may have very different approaches to the same case that's that's being referred in for consideration. Um, But so let's start with the actual four categories that are highlighted in the opinion piece, right? So we've got what's considered traditional or pediatric indications. This is really where, you know, PGTM, back in the day we called it PGD, really began, right? Your childhood onset, um, you know, typically very severe, oftentimes lethal type conditions, where at least on a clinical side, on a clinical perspective, um, you know, almost everyone is going to agree that yes, PGTM is an appropriate indication for that specific disorder. We then move into the second category that's termed serious adult onset conditions, um, where, you know, we've certainly seen an increasing acceptance, an increasing you know, degree of agreeability amongst clinicians and labs that, yes, this too is an appropriate area for for PGTM to be available. 
um, because we are talking about conditions that, you know, perhaps are not lifelong, perhaps they are adult onset, but they're oftentimes very serious in nature and, you know, typically have have little to no, um, you know, medical management or let's just say like curability, right? Um, sure. And we have can, seen can you, it. Can you give some examples of those sorts of conditions? Yeah, so I think that the best examples are probably a lot of the um, hereditary cancer syndromes. So, you know, HBOC, hereditary breast ovarian cancer syndrome, Lynch, Lynch syndrome, um, these are disorders that are typically going to present at an older age. So typically, again, you know, we're talking about these conditions that present in adulthood, um, there may not even be full penetrance, meaning, you know, you may not even have an absolute guarantee of developing disease if you do have that genetic mutation, but they're serious. They are, you know, difficult to treat, difficult to manage, and oftentimes have very serious impact um, on an individual's health status and well-being as they enter their, their adulthood years. Um, um, okay, so moving into our third category, we have mild conditions or indications of limited or questionable risk reduction. Um, and this is really where things start to become a bit more controversial or perhaps inconsistent from one clinic to the next, from one lab to the next. Um, and, you know, again, I think part of the goal of highlighting these different categories in this opinion piece is to try and underline and highlight why PGTM is so complicated and why, um, you know, you may as a clinician have different experiences um, working with different laboratories and perhaps receiving different feedback. So if we're talking specifically about, um, you know, disorders that fall into this category, we can start with things on the low penetrant side with your, you know, late onset Alzheimer's disease, risk susceptibility, so APOE4. Um, then we've also got things like our milder genetic variants, including the 5T allele and some of those other modifiers for, um, for cystic fibrosis. So these, again, are going to be those groups of disorders where I think it's extremely important that patients really understand both the position of the clinic that they're working with and, you know, understanding that what may be, um, you know, approved as an indication for, for PGTM in one clinic may be different than, than what could be approved in another clinic and, and likewise with a potential laboratory that could be involved in the testing. Um, and then the fourth category is, is basically indications for which PGTM is not recommended. And I'll say, you know, even within this category, I think that there's, you know, some room for controversy, some room for debate. There's going to be some differing of opinions, but it's really um, the grouping where most clinicians, most laboratories would likely agree that um, the indication for PGTM is, is, is really just, just not there. Um, and perhaps where you're starting to see some of those risks outweigh benefits. Dina, how should patients be counseled on PGTM? What are the most important counseling points that patients should be aware of pre-test, po post-test, what does the document say about 
counseling and informed consent of patients? Sure. So genetic counseling for PGTM should include a discussion of how PGTM test development is performed, the feasibility of PGTM, uh, genetic test reports um, and genetic testing requested from any additional family members, uh, the DNA samples from the reproductive pair, as well as any appropriate family members that are needed for PGTM test development, and also the counseling should include the timeline for test development. Um, PGTM is, is not an on-the-shelf ready-to-go test, and so it's really important for these these couples to know um, that it takes a lot of time and there's a lot of prep work before, before we're ready for them to start an IVF cycle and test embryos. Um, patients should also be counseled on the accuracy for PGTM as well as the recommendation for prenatal diagnostic testing um, and expected outcomes based on inheritance pattern. The genetic counseling can also include turnaround time for embryo results, as well as types of potential results they may see on a results report that goes back to their referring provider so that everyone is aware of what the results may look like and what are the expected outcomes based on the inheritance, the genetic condition, maybe age-related risks as well. Thanks. Yeah, and, and the document really laid out some key differences between clinic-based genetic counselors and laboratory-based genetic counselors. And I know we in the GCPG have been discussing this a lot and trying to educate the greater ASRM community about these differences. So as you're talking about this um, counseling and consenting process for patients, what are the different roles and responsibilities of clinic versus lab-based genetic counselors? Yeah, absolutely. So um, clinic genetic counselors are unaffiliated with a PGT lab where sometimes conflict of interest may be perceived. Um, these genetic counselors who are in clinic are, are positioned within the fertility clinic. They are also, they're able to provide process specific information about PGTM within their clinic's own IVF protocols. So these genetic counselors may know their own clinic's policies regarding transfer decisions, regarding PGTM disease acceptance. Um, they know their own clinic's policies and protocols and, and can tailor recommendation to the, this, the individual or the couple's fertility history. It's different from a laboratory-based genetic counselor who are best positioned to handle the technical aspects of the PGTM process, um, able to provide tailored pre-test and post-test genetic counseling relevant to their lab's specific PGT technology, um, and really discuss the nuances of, of their PGT lab that they, that they work with. Thank you. Um, is there anything else that we should keep in mind when it comes to test development and some of the nuances there? That's a great question, Jenna, because as Elizabeth mentioned at the very beginning, PGTM is very different than genetic testing for people, very different than testing pregnancies, 
really comes down to the amount of DNA in an embryo biopsy. So, uh, you know, when we're testing people or pregnancies through blood or saliva or another DNA sample, there's often millions of cells of DNA that is, it really is simpler testing. But when we test an embryo through an embryo biopsy, we only get about five or so cells of DNA. It's such a tiny amount that PGTM is so different than testing people. And for PGTM test development, it's important to recognize that a unique PGTM test needs to be developed for every reproductive pair, regardless of how common the genetic condition is, regardless of how common the genetic mutation may be. PGTM test development takes weeks. Uh, it's, it's, again, like I said, it's not a ready-to-go test. It takes many weeks to develop prior to the PGT lab being ready to test the embryo biopsy samples. Um, PGTM can also be performed for most genetic conditions and mutations, um, and however, rarely due to technical or clinical limitations, PGTM cannot be performed for every single genetic condition or every single variant. So those are really some important pieces to remember when, when thinking about um, doing PGTM, offering PGTM. It's, it's very unique and it's very specific. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I actually, as you were talking, I, it got me thinking, I hope that other genetics professionals outside of ART also get a chance to see this document because I think there's um, a lack of understanding amongst other genetics professionals about um, some of these nuances in the testing itself. Uh, like I'm, I'm sure you've experienced this and I certainly have as well where I'm talking to say a prenatal genetics group or a pediatrics genetics group, and I say something like PGTM is not possible in all circumstances, and they're shocked and they're like, oh, we didn't know that. That's not what we've been telling these couples or these families when we're counseling them about their options. Um, so again, I'm really glad that this document exists and hopefully it will be available um, throughout the clinical genomics community. Um, we should probably wrap up pretty soon, but I did want to touch um, on one additional thing, um, and I'll throw this one to Elizabeth. Can you briefly touch on um, these two main different approaches to PGTM at a technical level, linkage analysis versus direct view mutation analysis or direct variant analysis? Um, the document goes into these two methods a little bit and talks about risks of allele dropout and such. So could you explain that a little bit? I can try. Sure. Okay. <laughs> um, so in short, linkage analysis is really what we consider the gold standard of testing when performing PGTM. And it really um, goes back a bit to, to what Dina was just saying about the amount of DNA or the lack of amount of DNA that's available in embryo biopsy samples. So I like to try and explain this to patients by saying that in order to test their embryo biopsy samples for the condition in question, we first need to design the test that we're going to use on those embryo biopsy samples. And, you know, of course, pointing out that the testing of embryo biopsy samples, it's just not nearly as straightforward as genetic testing. 
that they themselves have have previously undergone. Um, so really, you know, testing specifically for the mutation identified in the family, that's what we refer to as direct variant analysis or direct mutation analysis. Um, that portion of the test is oftentimes feasible, not always feasible. It depends on the mutation. And it certainly is an important component of PGTM. Um, however, in going in and attempting to look for a very, very specific area of genetic material, a very specific region, we know because of the small amount of DNA that we're working with up front, that information is not always going to be clear. It's not always going to come through um, and, and be quite as informative as what we can achieve with a linkage analysis test. So in designing a PGTM test via linkage analysis, what we're really doing is we're studying numerous genetic markers located near the gene of interest, and we are paying attention to the patterns that are present in both gamete contributors as well as any affected or other reference family members. And this is really just giving ourselves the opportunity to look at more data points once those embryo biopsy samples arrive for testing. Because again, we know in testing embryo biopsy samples that not everything's going to come through clearly. We're not going to get good, clear data on everything that we're looking for. But by setting things up via linkage analysis, you're giving yourself the opportunity to look at whatever data happens to come through clearly and still make a diagnosis, still recognize enough of the pattern to see whether the mutation that we're trying to avoid was actually inherited and or is actually present in that particular sample or not. Um, so I don't know. Did that sound okay? No, that was a beautiful okay. explanation. Oh, okay. Yeah. You know, I um, I had a professor in graduate school who would reflect on her time, her many years in uh, the clinical genetic space. And she used to say, back in my day, all we had was karyotyping and a little bit of linkage, which I think is interesting because linkage analysis is not a new concept. No. It's, been a, it's been around for a very long time. And a lot of um, the original research studies that identified causal genes for specific conditions were identified using linkage analysis in affected families. So this is not, um, at least in general concept, a new type of testing, although we approach it, I think, in a little more high-tech ways now than we did in the past. But um, it's it's interesting because, again, it's it's not a new concept, but it's still so useful and so relevant in these PGTM cases. And in my opinion, linkage analysis is maybe the most complicated genetic testing method to wrap your head around exactly how it works and how um, these genetic fingerprints are moving through the family and how we use that to identify the presence or absence of a causal variant. It's pretty complicated. Um, and that's Again, why I'm so glad this document exists to sort of lay out for the ART community why PGTM 
is so complicated. That's what we've all been talking about uh, for the last several minutes, right? Every case is custom designed. Um, the Obviously, the genetic patterns that we're looking for in each family are going to be unique to those individual families. Um, and that's why design can take so much time. Um, I'm really glad that this document lays this all out for practitioners who may want to understand at a deeper level what really is going on with PGTM um, and what are some of these um, nuancing factors that make it a lengthier process, a more involved process where oftentimes multiple specialists are getting involved to um, get these cases done for these families. And again, I'm, I'm so grateful that we live in a time where this is an option to um, the patients and families that we work with. So we're out of time. So I just want to thank both Elizabeth and Dina for coming on the podcast. This was a great discussion. I really uh, admire your expertise in this uh, type of testing, PGTM. Um, I really appreciated your time talking about this new committee opinion that's uh, that's come out. I hope everyone listening to this gets a chance to review it. Um, and if you'd like to find out more about our PGTM offerings here at Cooper Surgical or find out more about our global team of board-certified genetic counselors, of which Elizabeth and Dina are just two of many excellent um, GCs on our team, please head to our website where I believe we have little bios on each of our GCs. Um, so again, thank you so much for joining us today. Please like, share, and follow our series, and we will see you soon for another episode.